Our sermon series is Kings. We are looking at the kings of Israel and then Judah. And the reason we're looking at them is because these stories consistently, what the authors of Chronicles and Kings and Samuel do is they focus on the person in charge, not because kings are the ones that matter and peasants don't. God cares about all people. And in fact, he does his best things with the least important. But it's because kings give us just in bold print, high contrast examples of what it looks like when God gives responsibility to people, and they either handle it well or they handle it poorly. And so as we look at the kings, we get to see these examples that we can learn from of how does God want me to use the responsibility, the authority, the money, the whatever that he's given me. You may not feel like a king or queen, but whatever God has given you to rule over He has given it to you for a purpose, and he has entrusted it to you because it matters. Whether that's a large bank account or a lot of employees, or whether that's the people that you interact with at the grocery store or the people who come in to take care of you at home. Whatever that is, God has given it to you for a reason, and you have an opportunity to use it for his purposes or not. And so we're looking at these stories to help us live that out well. We are moving into the reign of King Hezekiah. Last week, we looked at Uzziah, and Uzziah had this story where he was really strong at the beginning, and then something happened, and he went really poorly after that. And that's a recurring theme in the book of Chronicles. As we look at the rest of the family tree catching up to where we are today, we have Jotham and Ahaz and then Hezekiah. Jotham and Ahaz both went through this Rhythm where they started out strong and then something happened and they turned away from God and they ended poorly. So when Hezekiah takes over from his father Ahaz, he's taking, taking over after a period of ungodly, idolatrous reign. And in fact, one of the things they did back then, they believed in apprenticeships. And so for the last 10 years of Ahaz's reign, Hezekiah sat on the throne next to him and was the junior king. So they actually reigned together for about 10 years. Now you'll notice in Judah, the the family tree is a pole. I mean, there are other people, but in terms of who's on the throne, it's a pole. The northern kingdom's not quite that orderly. They are having problems. Uh, You'll notice a lot of assassinations, okay? Um, Only a couple of those are actually father-to-son handoffs. A lot of murder, a lot of murder. And during the time that Hezekiah is coming onto the throne, this finally gets so bad that the northern kingdom gets destroyed by Assyria and disappears, and those ten tribes are never seen again. Some of the survivors, there are people who are left behind, and they actually get incorporated into Judah, but those tribes are gone. They never exist again. We're down to the two tribes in the tribe of Judah. That's why we call modern Israelites Jews, because that comes from the name Judah, because they all come from that part of the kingdom, okay? So Hezekiah is taking over the kingdom after jointly ruling with his dad, and in those 10 years, his dad has been leading the country in the wrong direction, and at the same time, they've got this thing happening north of them where the only other kingdom in the world that follows, or at least is supposed to follow Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has been annihilated by Assyria, okay? That's the circumstance under which Hezekiah becomes king. So, what does Hezekiah do? 
Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the Lord's temple and repaired them. Oh yeah, his dad had shut the temple completely. Just boarded it up. We're not using it. We don't need it. We'll just worship at idols in the street corners. Then he brought the priests and Levites and gathered them in the eastern public square. He said to them, hear me, Levites. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove anything impure from the holy place. For our ancestors were unfaithful, that's for our fathers, literally, and did what is evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They abandoned him, turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place, and turned their backs on him. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was on Judah and Jerusalem, and he made them an object of terror, horror, and mockery, as you see with your own eyes. Things are not going well right now, and it's because we're not following God. It is in my heart now to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his burning anger may turn away from us. My sons, don't be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to serve him, and to be his ministers and burners of incense. So, first thing Hezekiah does, day one, month one, very first thing, after co-reigning with his father for 10 years, and leading the, who was leading the country toward idol worship, he says, like basically at the, the first day he can come to work without black on, morning, officially mourning his father. He says, all right, guys, remember how we were going this direction and my dad took us in that direction? Dear old dad, yeah, we're going to go this way instead because everything my dad told you was wrong. The whole direction he led you in was wrong and that's why this country is in trouble. I want you to first of all think of what that means personally for Hezekiah. First of all, he is completely turning his back on everything his dad did. Imagine what that means for him personally. Imagine what that means in his family dynamic. Now think about the fact that everyone who works for him is invested in this idol worshiping avenue, right? All the king's closest advisors, they all worship idols. All the people who are powerful in the current regime, they worship idols. He is leading a one-man transformation. And even when you're king, that's hard. Because kings only have power when people follow them, right? So Hezekiah, when he, he reversed his father's policies and reopened the temple, this is a huge deal. Even kings don't get to just flip a switch and say, all right, we're doing everything different now. Have you ever noticed with the way we trade presidencies back and forth between parties that when a new president comes in, you feel a bit of whiplash? Like, oh, we're doing things this way now. Oh, we're talking this way now. Oh, like, like oh, this particular department has this attitude now. Like, it, it just, you get, that's what's going on. And it is a really big deal for Hezekiah to make this change. And if any of you are in homes or workplaces, or circles of friends with a lot of pressure, a momentum going in one direction, you know that turning to follow Jesus more faithfully is going to be hard. You're going to be swimming against the current. Even if your family nominally or your friends nominally follow Jesus, but you realize we're not actually really following him, it takes work. It takes a commitment to make those changes. But what we see in Hezekiah is, it can happen. 
Because Hezekiah, the reign of Hezekiah is in some ways, in at least two ways, the most important period in Israel's history. For or after until Jesus. Because here's what happens. It says, after they dedicate the temple, when the burnt offerings are completed, the king and all those present with him bowed down and worshiped. Then Hezekiah and the officials told the Israelites to sing praise to the Lord in the words of David and of the seer Asaph. So they sang praises with rejoicing and knelt down low and worshiped. Um, I think Chronicles was written by a worship leader because they always point out when the Israelites, when the, when the people of Israel sing. Like they always point, and especially when the army was led by the worship team, they really point that out. Like that, they talk a lot about the worship as part of what the people are doing. And then Hezekiah concluded, now you are consecrated to the Lord. Come near and bring sacrifices and thanksgiving offerings to the Lord's temple. So the congregation brought sacrifices and thanksgiving offerings, and all those with willing hearts burnt, brought burnt offerings. When all that, this was completed, all Israel who had attended went out to the cities of Judah and broke up the sacred pillars, chopped down the Asherah poles, and tore down the high places and altars throughout Judah and Benjamin, as well as in Ephraim and Manasseh, to the last one. Ephraim and Manasseh are territories from the northern kingdom that Hezekiah was able to absorb. So he's actually expanded into some of the abandoned land of the north kingdom. So what happens is he is able to get the people to go with him on this, Right? But he does two things. One is he destroys the, they go out and destroy the idols. And we've seen this happen. A lot of kings have been successful in destroying the idols. But if we had been, if you had chronicles memorized up to this point, the fact that you would care a lot about the high places, because no king up to this point has gotten to deal with the high places. And often what it'll say at the end of the reign is it'll say, this king was great, but he didn't deal with the high places. This king was awesome. He did all these things, but he didn't deal with the high places. What are the high places? Idols are worshiping the wrong God. High places are worshiping the right God in the wrong place and the wrong way. So God said, worship me, at, make your sacrifices to me at the temple and only at the temple. High places are high places. They go to a mountaintop. You ever feel close to God on a mountaintop? A lot of people do. So they would build, they would do sacrifices there. And anybody could do it. You could do it any time you wanted, and most of them were, depending on where you lived, it was probably closer than Jerusalem. The problem is that God was very particular about the design of the temple, and all of that design, it tells you something about God so that you understand who God is and what your sacrifice means. Another part of it is you remember that you're all following the same God. You don't have like a northern God and a southern God and that kind of thing, but the temple communicates something to you so that you worship God rightly. When you go to the high place, you can worship God however you want. You can do, do it any way you want, and that's a problem. Hezekiah is the first to actually tear down the high places. So David didn't do it. Solomon, the first thing he did was actually worship at one. When he has that vision of God, where God offers him wisdom, yeah, that's at a high place. Um, of course, and so this is a really big deal that Hezekiah led the people in rededicating themselves to God alone. And the fact that they tore down the high places means that Hezekiah was the most successful king in its history, in Israel's history, in the history of the people of God, and that Israel was never more faithful to God's design than this period in their history. They never have been in the past, and they never would be again. This is the peak this is the pinnacle. This is their best shining moment of following God 
the way he told them to. Okay? That is really important to me to recognize this. In, we've seen a lot of low points. Hezekiah destroying the high places, absolute highest point in the, in the Old Testament. Okay? That's important because of what happens next. After Hezekiah's faithful deeds, King Sennacherib of Assyria came and entered Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities and intended to break into them. We've talked about a lot of invasions in this series, and most of the time when we talk about them, they are responses to people's unfaithfulness. People are unfaithful to God, and God says, fine, I will let you live in the world you're making. I'm not going to protect you, and they get invaded. So there's a connection between unfaithfulness and invasion. But this is the most faithful that Israel will ever be, and there's an invasion, and not just a little invasion. Red is Judah, green is Assyria. It's them against the world. And what happens is Sennacherib shows up, and he starts going town to town, conquering every town, saving Jerusalem for last. So by the time they have the confrontation at Jerusalem that we're going to talk about, he has, like, Jerusalem is full of refugees, and all Hezekiah has left is one big town. Right? This is what happens when he is at his most faithful. Hezekiah's faithfulness was followed by a massive invasion. Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly say this, but the way it's phrased, after his, he was faithful, there was an invasion. There seems to be this connection that there might be a causal connection. So sometimes when we are unfaithful to God, God responds by withdrawing his protection and letting us have the consequences of our actions. Sometimes when we are especially faithful to God, it seems to provoke this response from the powers of the world. There's no sense that this is sent by God, but there is this sense that he was really faithful and the world kind of rose up to meet it. So sometimes the issues that we run into in our lives, they come from the fact that we're being unfaithful to God. And sometimes they are the world trying to break our faithfulness to God or being uh, provoked by our faithfulness to God. We'll talk about why that happens in our own lives a little bit later, but that seems to be the implication. And... Sennacherib comes in with this massive army. He takes his time destroying every town by town by town. And when he's at like the last town before Jerusalem, he sends a messenger. And this messenger shows up in front of the gates of Jerusalem and he give, delivers the message, but he delivers it in Hebrew. The king's representatives even say, hey, can we speak in something else? Because we don't want the people to understand what you're saying. And the guy says, no, no, no. I want everyone to hear this. And this is what he says. This is what King Sennacherib of Assyria says. What are you relying on that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? Isn't Hezekiah misleading you to give you over to death by famine and thirst when he says, the Lord our God will keep us from the grasp of the king of Assyria? Didn't Hezekiah himself remove the high places, his high places, and his God's high places and his altars and say to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before one altar and you must burn incense on it? Don't you know that I and my predecessors, what I and my predecessors have done to all the peoples of the lands? Have any of the national gods of the lands been able to rescue their land from my power, including the national god of the northern kingdom, which is Yahweh, the same god that 
Hezekiah is claiming. Who among all the gods of these nations that my predecessors completely destroyed was able to rescue his people from my power that your God should be able to deliver you from my power? So now don't let Hezekiah deceive you and don't let him mislead you like this. Don't believe him for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to rescue his people from my power or the power of my predecessors. How much less will your God rescue, me, rescue you from my power? So there's two things that happen here. Number one is that the messengers mock Hezekiah's faithfulness. They make it seem small and petty. Like, look at how massive we are and how many gods we have devoured. And you think your piddly little god in this little podunk kingdom can do anything to us, especially when we've already beaten him once. But the other thing that they do, if you notice, they slander Hezekiah's conduct. Did you notice that? They took the greatest achievement in, the, in terms of being obedient to God, the greatest achievement of any king in the history of Israel and Judah, and they turned it into something nasty and selfish. He destroyed God's high places. He did that because he wanted you to have to worship in his city. That wasn't faithfulness to God. That was a power grab. Why would you die for this guy who's actually provoking your God? He's not faithful. He's God's enemy. So not only do they slander, they, they mock his faithfulness, but they also slander his faithfulness and claim that the very things that were his greatest faithfulness to God were actually poor character, selfishness, bad things, right? And they're doing this, in, like they don't even speak to Hezekiah. They just speak to his people and slander him to them. So, how does Hezekiah respond? Well, in the book of Chronicles, it's very quickly summarized. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, prayed about this and cried to heaven. And that's it. Hezekiah responded to their threats and mockery with prayer. I was unsatisfied with that version, so we're going to switch over to Kings, because while Kings agrees with it perfectly, it gives us more detail. It actually tells us what Hezekiah prayed. And you should be jealous of Hezekiah. Hezekiah got a written answer. He actually received in the mail a written answer to his prayer, right? <laughs> Hezekiah prayed before the Lord, Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but made by human hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, Lord, our God, please save us from his power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God. You alone. Now that is a pretty typical prayer of deliverance, but I want to highlight one thing. When we because this is a unique moment where we know what the messengers said to, to Hezekiah's people, and we know what Hezekiah said 
to God, and we're going to find out what God said back. Notice what he's talking to God about. What is the problem that he wants God to solve? It's not his own reputation. He doesn't say, God, they slandered me, so I want you to show up to prove that I was right all along to tear down those high places. He says, they have mocked you. And he asked God to deliver Israel to prove something about God to the world, not something about himself. He's not asking God to step in to save his own reputation. He's asking God to step in and correct people's understanding of who God is so that they can see the truth about God. Because Hezekiah understands his mission. His mission is to lead God's people in revealing the nature of God to the world. So he asks God to participate in that mission, not simply to salvage his own reputation. And he gets a letter from Isaiah, the same Isaiah that wrote the book, Isaiah. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city, shoot an arrow here, come before it with a shield, or build up a siege wrap against it. He will go back the way he came, and he will not enter this city. This is the Lord's declaration. I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake and for the sake of my servant, David. How would you like to get that letter? God, I'm battling this illness. Next day, a letter comes. I'm, not, I'm going to defeat that. God says, I am going to defeat it for my sake and for my son's sake. It'd be nice to get those letters. We don't, but we get to hear about Hezekiah's because this same God is the one who listens to our prayers. And God responds to this prayer, which is a theme of the book of Chronicles, And he responds in a pretty powerful and world-changing way. The Lord sent an angel who annihilated every valiant warrior, leader, and commander in the camp of the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria returned in disgrace to his land. Uh, As near as we can tell, and it's a bit clearer in Kings, uh, this angel brought a um, disease. Uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? A plague. He brought a plague. So they wake up one morning and just everybody's dead of chickenpox or something, right? Like they're just bodies everywhere and the army got out of there quick because they have no idea what that comes from and they just run, right? Then the king went to the temple of his God and there some of his own children struck him down with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the power of King Sennacherib of Assyria and from the power of all the others. He gave them rest on every side. So God responded to Hezekiah's prayer by protecting his people and humbling the Assyrians. And we can see the success of God's defense of Hezekiah. How many of you had heard the name Hezekiah before you came here this morning? How many of you for Sennacherib? How many of you were confident in how to say Sennacherib? Okay, how many could have told me the name of the king before I read the passage? The point is, all this time later, who's more important? Well, God is most, but in terms of who, who did God make more important? Hezekiah. In fact, um, secular historians will recognize this. I think Frank Musgrave recommended this book to me. There's a book called What If? And it's a historian writing articles about ways that world history could have gone differently. And he's not a believer, as far as I can tell. I didn't ask him. I've never talked to him. But the way he writes, you know, the thing, the, just the arguments that he makes, 
he certainly does not base his argument off the Bible. But here's what he says about this moment, because what's happening is this is a turning point in world history. This is why I call Hezekiah the faithful king, because there is one flame left burning for obedience to the God of Israel. The northern kingdom is gone. It's all down to Judah, and now it's down to one city. If this city is destroyed, there is no one left who follows the one God. World history depends on the outcome of this battle. And this historian says, if Jerusalem had fallen, Judaism would have disappeared from the face of the earth and the two daughter religions of Christianity and Islam could not possibly have come into existence. In short, our world would be profoundly different in ways we cannot really imagine. Now we know that that's not how history works, right? Like God doesn't let let his people get destroyed. That was never actually gonna happen. But what we find is that Hezekiah's faithfulness in this moment had drastic consequences for the rest of human history because he was faithful to God. Both in the decisions that he made to turn to change the direction of Judah and in the decision to trust in God rather than give in to the pressure of the Assyrians. His faithfulness changed everything. Now, what does this mean for us who are unlikely to be put under siege by the army of Assyria or any other army? We're probably not going to be sieged, mainly because Turner doesn't have walls. Um, And other reasons too, but that's a big one. The first thing to recognize that applies to us as well is that the world will misinterpret our faithfulness to God and will try to oppose it. Especially in our modern culture, we live in a culture that tries to focus everyone into a singular loyalty, and we are suspicious of any loyalty that anybody has that we can't all share. I, see, sometimes it feels like Hollywood hates Christians, because try and think of a sympathetic character in a movie or TV show who is a devout Christian, a practicing Christian. It hardly ever happens. I don't think it's because they hate Christians, mainly because I think they'll make anything that sells. But it's because we don't like narrow loyalties. We want our characters to only be loyal to our whole culture, something that we can all share. And as soon as somebody says, now I'm following something narrower than that, I'm following God, who's going a different direction than our culture, we get suspicious. We don't like that. We feel it even as Christians when we look at groups, religious groups that are more insular than ours, right? Like if you ever know, like, like they're like the Amish or the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses that are tighter knit communities. And you look at that and you sometimes go, this is a bit weird. You know, the, why, why did people oppose electing our first Catholic? Because Catholics have a Pope. He'll listen to the Pope instead of the Constitution, Right? We don't trust those other loyalties. And so when we are faithful to God, it provokes a reaction from the world because we're not faithful to what they're faithful to. And Peter points this out. He says uh, to people living in a culture that is, thinks all of these practices are normal, all these horrible, sinful things that the Romans were doing. And he says, they are surprised that you don't join with them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. Because they can't understand why you're not loyal to the things they are. And they don't trust a person who doesn't share their loyalties. And so they misunderstand it and they slander it. 
And that's what will happen to us as we are faithful to God is that those who are not faithful to God simply won't understand. I'm not saying that they hate you. I'm saying they don't understand you. And if they don't understand you, they can't put you in the category that you're actually in. So they're going to put you in a category that makes sense to them. They're going to misunderstand it. And it's important for us in those moments to remember that our job is not to set the record straight. It is to remain faithful to God. Notice Hezekiah wasn't focused on his, on his reputation. He was focused on being faithful to God. Because here's the interesting thing. You know how it says that he goes home and gets killed by his sons? That's a thing that the Bible does called telescoping, where they tell you two things close together that didn't happen close together, but nothing important happened in between. It was actually quite a while after he got home before Sennacherib got assassinated, long enough for him to carve this thing called the Taylor Prism. Well, he didn't carve it. Kings don't carve their own things, but he had someone carve it. And this is a, a carved record of all of his campaigns. And it includes the Assyrian version of this campaign. And here's how he tells the story. As for Hezekiah, the Jew, who did not submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong-walled cities I besieged and took. Himself, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city. Earthworks I threw up against him, the one turning out of the city gate, I turned back to his misery. The terrifying splendor of my majesty overcame him, and the Arabs and his mercenary troops deserted him. I took away all kinds of valuable treasure, as well as his daughters, his harem, his male and female musicians, to Nineveh, my royal city." which is all accurate, but it neglects why he left the city without destroying it. It neglects noting that when he took all those things, he was leaving with his tail between his legs, terrified of this plague. But that's not the story he tells. He focuses on all the stuff he did before God intervened and destroyed his army. So even after this great world-changing event, there's still propaganda going out, minimizing what God did. So just because God did this doesn't mean the record fully got straight. Here's the thing. People who don't want to recognize God will always find a way to ignore what he does. They will always find another explanation. That's why we can't live and die by our own reputations. Because you can't control your reputation. You can't control what people, how people tell the story of what's go, what you've been doing and what God is doing in your life. What we can do is control how we react to people. And this is what Peter stresses. He says, Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. What he's saying is be ready to answer for your faith, but not in a way that attacks and alienates people, but in a way that makes their accusations a lie. Too often, what we, we respond to people's slander about us by making that slander true, <laughs> right? The ways we respond confirm the slander. And what Peter is saying is when you're slandered, double down on doing things the right way. Sometimes you just have to say, you know what? People who know me will know that's a lie. But if you try and confront the lie in ways that make you unfaithful to God, you view it a reputation and your mission. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, 
than for doing evil. We remain faithful to God by following the battle plan. That's what we do in these situations. We remain faithful to the battle plan, to the purpose, to the, the way God has told us to conduct ourselves. So how do we conduct ourselves? Peter says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits. When God shows up and says, these are my people, they'll think, you know what, now that you say that, there was something different about them. Like, they do kind of look like you. Now that you mention it, I see the resemblance. Right? As opposed to really those people, they look nothing like you. If you look at the way Paul tells us to fight with the armor of God, he says, um, he talks about truth as a belt. Righteousness, that's like your integrity, your faithfulness to God as the armor on your chest. Your feet are the readiness to bring the gospel, to answer with the gospel. Protect yourself with your faith. Protect your, your vital organs with your salvation. And pray at, the all, at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. That's how we fight. That's the battle plan. And it relies heavily on your integrity, your faithfulness, and your dependence on God through prayer. That's what we have to stay true to. And that's how we win battles, or God wins battles through us that change the world. Amen? I'm going to 